This reading's from Isaiah chapter 11, verses 1 to 9, and is on your service sheets and page 697 of the Pew Bibles. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse, and his roots, a branch, will bear fruit. The Spirit of the Lord will rest on him, the Spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the Spirit of counsel and of might, the Spirit of the knowledge and fear of the Lord. And he will delight in the fear of the Lord. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes, or decide by what he hears with his ears. But with righteousness he will judge the needy, with justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips, he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt, and faithfulness the sash around his waist. The wolf will live with the lamb. The leopard will lie down with the goat. The calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear. Their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put his hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Well, thank you, Bethany, for reading that to us. Um, If you want to... Keep sight of Isaiah 11 uh, on the service sheet or in the Bibles. That would be good. Um, I think we prayed, actually, because we sang that song, praying for the Spirit of Pentecost to teach us and to lead us to to meet with Christ in his word. So I should get straight underway. Uh, One of the things I've certainly felt this Jubilee weekend is the blessing of living in this country, and I could add in our particular corner of this country, at this time. Uh, which is hard to beat, is it not? But Isaiah 11, of course, offers a vision of a perfect world, God's great fulfillment of his kingdom. There was a very interesting note of guidance about um, jubilee services. I can't remember exactly where I read it. I think in the, the Church of England's rubrics as to how we should mark the occasion in, uh, in church. This note of guidance said that the platinum thanksgiving services that were being held up and down the country in parishes ought not to replace the regular Sunday services of the week. And I think that's especially so in view of the fact that uh, this Sunday is a special Sunday in the Christian calendar, Pentecost, when we remember the gift of the Holy Spirit. Now, I don't know if that guidance came from the top, and I'm meaning the Queen herself, But it points us from the blessings that we're conscious of under the reign of a wonderful queen to God's perfect rule, trumping them, even them, on an occasion like this uh, bank holiday weekend has been. And, of course, the queen is the first to acknowledge the prior importance of God and his kingdom. I love that title of the book which came out on the Queen's 90th birthday, The Servant Queen and the King She Serves, which has been implied in that video we saw together. She acknowledges God's kingdom. That is the Christian hope, that fulfillment and perfection, as we heard in Isaiah 
chapter 11 just now, those wonderful verses. For example, verses 6 and 9. The wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And I just want to ask myself and encourage us to all ask ourselves, dare we believe that those promises might be true? Well, let me walk you through the logic of the verses we had in Isaiah chapter 11. First of all, we meet a qualified king. That's my first heading, a qualified king. If um, you missed it, the idea of royalty is there in the first verse of Isaiah chapter 11. A shoot will come up from the stump of Jesse. From his roots, a branch will bear fruit. Jesse was, I'm sure you know, the father of King David. And so the image of a shoot coming up from the stump of Jesse is saying that even if the tree of God's kingdom has been cut down, there is still a new beginning which will spring up from those royal roots. In the prophet Isaiah's day, um, things were pretty prosperous for the time being, for the kingdom of Judah, but it wouldn't last. In just a few years, Isaiah knew this would happen, Judah would be for the chop and cut down in its prime, just a smoldering tree stump left. But Isaiah predicted the green shoot of recovery, not a change in economic climate, that's the way you normally use that phrase. This is a person, a king in David's royal line, a shoot which will become a branch and ultimately a tree bearing fruit. And the next few verses show that he's a very special king, not just one anointed with oil by a priest. He is the Lord's anointed with the Holy Spirit of God resting on him, the Spirit of the Lord Uh, Verse 2 says, we'll rest on him, the spirit of wisdom and of understanding, the spirit of counsel and of might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and he will delight in the fear of the Lord. So that's why we can say so confidently that this king to come is a qualified king. Here is a leader in a different class from all others, even the best human leaders, can't eliminate all our problems. But this king would be different. Yes, he would be human from the line of David, but he'd be more than human, anointed by the Holy Spirit of God. Unlike other leaders in the Old Testament, on this shoot from the stump of Jesse, the spirit rests and remains. And therefore, this king is qualified. He's human, So he must have a proper respect for Almighty God, delighting in the fear of the Lord. And that, of course, sets him apart from the average, run-of-the-mill, power-crazed dictator in many, many ways. But he's more than human, because by the Holy Spirit, he's able to bring God-like qualities to his reign. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, power. So there's a leader who can change the world for good. And it's not just a nice idea, we know, because he actually came. 700 years or so after Isaiah spoke, he showed up in person. And there was that moment in the early life of Jesus Christ when the reading in the synagogue happened to be from another section of Isaiah, rather like this one, where the 
spirit-anointed king actually speaks. Remember that reading, the spirit of the Lord is upon me. Jesus read those words, and then everybody's eyes are fixed on him. And he says, those words I've just read you are coming true now. In other words, implicitly, in me, Jesus, as he speaks. And what you find as you look at the account of his life in the Gospels bears that out. He certainly had wisdom. Even his enemies had to acknowledge that no one talked like this man in debate. If you try to put Jesus on the spot, that was risky because he could always turn the tables on his questioner. He had power too. In fact, nothing could stand up against him, not sickness, not evil, not even death itself. He made things better. And yet, unlike most other kings, this one lived in the fear of the Lord without any hubris, without any hypocrisy. Evil had no handle on Jesus at all in the way it does on everyone else. He was the qualified king that Isaiah predicted. So what specifically would this king do? Well, onto a second heading, a decisive judgment. I'll carry on reading from verse 3b onwards. He will not judge by what he sees with his eyes or decide by what he hears with his ears, but with righteousness he will judge the needy. With justice he will give decisions for the poor of the earth. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth. With the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Righteousness will be his belt and faithfulness the sash round his waist. So here's the job description for God's anointed ruler. His job is to judge. And perhaps that isn't the way you think about Jesus. You're not necessarily particularly comfortable with that idea of him being primarily appointed to judge and to put wrong right. The picture is of a courtroom at the end of time with a difference on most courtrooms because this judge doesn't need to rely on Evidence of what's been seen or heard. He has perfect knowledge anyway. So in this courtroom, there are none of the familiar ways of dodging justice. No bribery, no diplomatic immunity, no extradition delays. And you'll notice how justice isn't skewed in favor of the rich against the poor. The poor of the earth are on the heart of this judge. And it is perfect justice. When this judge pronounces sentence... There are no arguments or appeals because he gets it right first time. He will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth, with the breath of his lips. He will slay the wicked. No debates and no delays. Just the decisive judgment of Almighty God. Perfectly executed without any chance of evil escaping it. When the NATO coalition began the campaign in Afghanistan in 2001. It had a code name. You know how they give code names to the various operations. Its original code name was Operation Infinite Justice. Now, we all know that other theatres of war have taken precedence recently. Without, it needs to be said, evil in Afghanistan being dealt with fully at all. And that just raises questions in our minds, or it should do, as to whether any alliance, any earthly powers, can deliver infinite justice. But God in the Bible is absolutely committed to overthrowing evil. 
And deep down, we all know that that is a good thing. What hope is there if justice doesn't triumph? We're uneasy about it. Is, it. is this the reason? Is our problem that evil isn't simply out there? We all know it's also in here. So next time I find myself reading in the news about something which makes my blood boil, some scandal, some injustice, next time that happens to you, well, let's count to ten and ask ourselves honestly how we view the evil in our own hearts. I wonder, have you really faced up to it? Or are you ignoring it or trying to excuse it? What do you say when we're faced by Jesus Christ as judge? You know, the truly amazing thing is, we've already thought about it as we confessed our sins earlier, is that Jesus can actually get us through that judgment. When he came in the first place, he didn't come to judge. He could have. He was qualified. But instead, on the cross, the judge bore the sentence on evil himself. He who was good was struck down for our evil. And if I come to him as somebody who needs a pardon, wonderfully he will forgive us and give a decision in our favor. He'll say, Simon Scott, there is no case for you to answer because your crime, your sin, I should say your crimes, your sins, there are many, have already been judged. I can be forgiven. That's the most wonderful news, is it not? But we ought not to think of it lightly just because this is familiar to us. It only happens because Jesus the judge took our judgment on himself when he died on the cross. And the fact that he did that tells us both how serious evil is and also how God is absolutely committed to dealing with it. So make no mistake about it, there's a a qualified king, and if I'm not forgiven by him, there'll be a decisive judgment. Well, there will be a decisive judgment. That is certainly on God's agenda. Only then can there be, uh, my last heading, paradise restored. So let me reread those mouth-watering words I, I read at the start. From verses 6 to 9, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together, and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together, and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den, and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Obviously, it's wonderful poetry, instantly memorable. Wonderful poetry, a world order which is so safe that not even the animals attack each other. And one where a child, the human being most vulnerable to attack, can lead the most voracious predators In the garden paradise, when evil entered the world, it was through the machinations of a serpent. And here, the creation curse is overturned, and humankind is once again victorious over the snake. It's paradise restored. 
We obviously can't guarantee safety like that. Every parent would love to try to warn their children, don't touch the iron, don't talk to strangers, don't play with a ball by the road. We'd love to be able to make a dangerous world a little bit safer for our children. But we can't guarantee safety to them or indeed to ourselves. And therefore God is telling us here to lift up our eyes to a paradise restored. He made the world in the first place and he can remake it through Jesus Christ. And if we'll only let him deal with our evil, we can be part of that as well. At home with God, where they'll neither harm nor destroy on all his holy mountain. In a measure, when Jesus walked the earth, paradise was restored. He did bring in the knowledge of God. He did forgive sin and set the curse on creation in reverse. And I'd add that we see his influence continuing through the blessings of Pentecost uh, all over the world, uh, in Christian families where he's known and loved, in churches, in wider communities too, sometimes even where he isn't fully acknowledged. Our own country, by virtue of the blessing of God, is an example of that to a degree. But there is a more wonderful fulfillment to these verses still to come when Jesus Christ comes again to deal with evil fully and finally. That's when all the miracles and beauty of Isaiah chapter 11 will be seen. We will see the full reality of what he achieved in his first coming when he comes again. And we see paradise restored. What a prospect. Nobody to harm us anymore. We might add nobody to be arrogant towards us, no one to deceive us, because everyone, it says here, will know God in a way which sets us free from wanting to come out of top, come out on top and uh, put others beneath us. The earth will be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. And therefore, not even a hint of evil will sneak in to spoil that paradise. Now, that longing for a better world is one which most of us understand. And we'd all want to know how to get there. When Thomas More wrote his fantasy travelogue in the year 1516, his work struck an instant chord with people. They wanted that perfect world, uh, a chord which reverberates with all of us to this day, I guess. He called his work Utopia, which is a made-up word, but it's passed into our language to describe a perfect world, a dream civilization. Actually, Thomas More's idea was slightly tongue-in-cheek. Literally, utopia means no place, or rather it's a pun. It could mean either the perfect place or no place. So you see the riddle. We all want there to be a fantastic place like this in Isaiah chapter 11. But the question that's being asked is, does such a place exist? Is it no such place? Well, it is the Bible's conviction that that longing is reasonable and it's fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Paradise will be restored. Now, maybe a hard-nosed atheist or a skeptic looks with pity on anybody who actually hopes for paradise to be restored. Uh, to them, it's just wishful thinking. But let's believe our beliefs if we're in church this evening and we've stood up and said the creed. What if the evidence is actually on the side of the believer? Because God has already shown 
a commitment to keep promises like the ones in Isaiah chapter 11. We can be confident that a king like this will come because he has already been seen in advance in the life and influence of Jesus Christ. And the vital question this passage faces us with is this. If if it's all a matter of the knowledge of the Lord, if that's the passport to this restored paradise, then do I know God? And am I growing in the knowledge of the Lord, the knowledge that will fill the earth as the waters cover the seas? If you're wondering sometimes when you've turned up to a smallish service, why am I here? Is that not the question that God is asking of me and of you this evening? Do I want to grow in the knowledge of the Lord, which is the only currency that counts in the restoration of paradise, ultimately? There was one moment in the coronation service watched on TV by millions. I think there were 27 million in this country alone. One moment... This service was watched by countless people around the world. One moment which nobody actually saw. That was the moment of the anointing. That was private. It was underneath that sort of, I don't know what you call it, an awning of sorts. And that reminds me that the anointing of God's spirit is deeply personal. Yeah, it's seen publicly uh, in the results that flow from it, but it's experienced the anointing of God's spirit, one person at a time. And we're remembering on Pentecost today the wonder that God's Holy Spirit can be given to me by the anointed King Jesus. I can know God personally through the real presence of the Holy Spirit in my life. And I want to ask, therefore, in one sense, for that uh, little private anointing to happen in my life and to encourage you to ask for that for yourself today, to ask for that personal knowledge of God by his Holy Spirit that Pentecost points us onwards to. There is an anointed king full of the Spirit of God who is able to give the Spirit to us. It would be appropriate for us today to ask for his work in our lives afresh. So will you do that? How wonderful for my sin to be forgiven, for me to know God, for me to be part of that new creation and to express that as he works in me in all the different aspects of life that I'm part of in life today. How wonderful that would be for the dozen or so of us that there are here. It would be a personal jubilee Um, which wonderfully is open for every single one of us to celebrate today. Let's pray together. I'm going to pray uh, using the words of a, a song that will be familiar to some of us, an old song for the Spirit's work in our life. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me. Break me, melt me, mold me, fill me. Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on me.
And we make that prayer. Gracious God, in the name of our spirit-anointed Saviour, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.